Well, hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. There we go. How's everybody doing tonight? Wow. Dead in here. All right. Well, whatever. Well, it's good to see you all. Um, welcome back to RUF. Welcome to Large Group. Um, it's, good to, it's good to see you all. A lot of you are veterans. You know what we're doing. Um, I hope you had a restful break. Did you all y'all have a good restful break, most of you, some of you? Yeah, Jacob had a good break. Yeah, I know I had a good, it was good for me to be, uh, yeah, good, good spring break. So I hope that was true for you. Y'all, there's only six weeks left in this semester. Whew. That, that like hits me like every week. I'm just like, oh. So I, I remember when I was in college and I would look at how many weeks were left and I was just like, there's no way it's getting done. Just look at my to-do list and just be like, can't happen. It's not going to happen. But here's the thing. It always gets done, right? Like somehow it always gets done. You know it does. Like it's not always the way you want it to, but it's always over with. So, um, hey, I'm really glad you're all here. Um, I'm going to just plug Summer Conference one more time, and then I will not talk about it anymore because I guarantee it'll be full. Y'all, there are like 100 spots left. It's going to fill up. Like, there's, a thousand, there's over 1,000 people going. This thing is big. It's tons of fun. It's going to fill up, like, tomorrow. But you can still go. Uh, all that we need is your name, basically, an email, and, like, a $75 deposit. You don't even need to pay all of it right now. Um, but I really would, if you want to come, please talk to me. Y'all, I've said this before, don't let money be why you don't go. We've got people who love NMSU, they love students, they want you to be able to go. So if money is a reason, don't let it be, come talk to me. Um, but I'm telling you, like, now's the time. Now's the time to go. Uh, it's so much fun. It really, really is a blast. So um, if you can come, uh, great, come talk to me. Um, so. Tonight we're going to continue our study of Leviticus, uh, and tonight we have a really, really challenging topic for our place, our culture, our moment in time and history and place. Um, tonight we're going to talk about homosexuality, which is a really tough topic for any time, uh, but it's especially when, you know, when we're on a college campus. Um, so there is so much to say about this topic, like the, I've done so much, I took spring break and did a bunch of research and reading and um, there are books and books and books of material to be said about this, about scripture and sexuality and caring for people and so, so much to say. There's just, there's no way I can say everything that needs to be said on this topic tonight in 30 minutes or less. So um, I'm just going to scratch the surface. So what I would encourage you to do is engage with me. If you have questions, if I say something that's really, really frustrating to you or something that confuses me, write it down, jot a note down, and I'd love to, you know, standard protocol, get coffee with you and process it, talk through it a little bit. Um, so uh, let's let this be something that starts the conversation, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. So um, I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to read our text, and then uh, we'll look at some observations. So if you have a bulletin or your Bible in front of you, I'm going to read this text and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. So this is from Leviticus chapter 18, the first five verses, and then, uh, then verse 22. This is God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And now verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. All right, let me pray first real quick. Lord in heaven, uh, thank you once again that we can gather here tonight. Uh, Thank you for your word, for once again, as it continues to challenge us, Lord, we pray now as we look at this topic, which is so confusing and so loaded and fraught in our time and place, we pray that your spirit would be present now. Um, Guide this servant as as I speak and guide these friends as they listen. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of ways we could start this. I want to start off by asking a question. It's innocuous, but we'll see with this. We'll start with this. Okay, how many of y'all have used a tool in the wrong way? You have a tool, and yeah, Jacob's done it. You've had a tool, but you've used it the wrong way. I know I have. So I'm just going to tell a couple of stories. So a couple of you, many of you know that, because it comes up in my sermons a lot, that I worked at a plant nursery for years and years in high school and college, right? And actually, it's this plant nursery on my shirt. And so one of my jobs at the nursery was I was the handyman. I would go around and basically fix stuff. I had one job, fix stuff. And um, we had this giant, awesome tool shop that had so many different awesome tools in it. And I got, and, and so my job was, Jonathan, you're in charge of when something breaks, you fix it. So I had, um, I, I could use whatever means were necessary. And so you know how it goes. Like, you start thinking about a problem, and you're like, I'm going to get a little creative on this one. I'm going to use this tool in this way. And that's definitely not how this tool was intended to be used. <laughs> and of course, often the results were disastrous. Let me give you a couple of things, of, uh, lessons I've learned, okay? First of all, never use a butane torch on flammable fabric. <laughs> Doesn't work, <laughs> right? Uh, next thing, uh, don't use metal pliers on electrified wire. You'd think you would have learned, <laughs> I should have known that. But no, I almost, I did, actually, I shouldn't be alive, like, grabbed onto a 220 with metal pliers and I should be dead. But um, next thing, don't use a bumper jack to hoist up a building. <laughs> it, does, <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, all these sorts of things. One story in particular, we had this, you know, we had a farm tractor. Um, you know, it's a big, it's a gorgeous tractor. I love this tractor. And it has a front loader on it, right? So it's got, you know, a bucket that can lift stuff. And one day, um, the, the bucker, bucket, of course, is intended to lift dirt. It, it scoops dirt, and that's all it's intended for. All. And one day, um, we needed to lift the concrete lid off of a septic tank. And uh, we were like, how are we going to get this thing up? Well, we didn't go re- want to rent a, you know, a real tool for this, like a forklift. We were like, the tractor's pretty strong. It can lift it. So, of course, we chain this 4,000-pound concrete lid to our tractor, and it starts just like trying to lift this thing up, and all of a sudden, it lifts it about two feet up, and then the hydraulic rams on the arms just kind of give out and squirt hydraulic fluid everywhere, and it just slams down. And we were like, well, that didn't work. (laughs) What were we doing? We were using a tool that was not for its intended purpose. A tractor loader is not intended to lift that kind of weight, right? It's not a forklift. Now, we've all done this, right? We've all used a particular tool in a way that it's not intended, and something gets broken or somebody gets hurt. Um, You know, there can be really disastrous consequences. Fortunately, I'm still alive from all the times I've done it at the nursery. But that is how human sexuality works. 
That is how human sexuality works. Sex is an incredible, it's not just a tool, it's a gift that the God of the universe gives to his people. But it has a very intended and specific purpose. So too often, I think, as we start this conversation about homosexuality, too often the answer that people hear from Christians when we start talking about sex is, no! The first thing people hear when they, you know, when, it was, when Christians start talking about sex is, it, don't, don't do it. Just don't. Don't do it. Sex. No. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I think that's an unfortunate place to start. You know, when people on campus, if you were to ask people, what do Christians think about sex? The overwhelming answer would be, Christians are prudish, they're regressive, they're backwards, just, and don't, Christians say just no. And, and that's unfortunate because the Bible's overwhelming message about human sexuality is yes! Yes! Sexuality is good. Sexuality is a good tool that God intends for a specific purpose. So before we can talk about homosexuality, we need to talk really quickly about the good gift, the good tool in God's intention, his cosmic yes about sexuality. So where do we do that? Well, to see anything in how it's supposed to be in the Bible, we have to start with Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we get a picture of how God creates the whole world. Not just sexuality, but everything. All human relationships, his relationships with, him, with, with God, him, our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, with the creation, everything. It's the way things are supposed to be. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a couple of things in regard to sex. We see first that God creates human beings as sexual creatures. God creates human beings as secular, sex, sexual creatures. And that God creates sex, the act of sex, as a good, great, celebratory thing. This is interesting. The first recorded words, the first human words in the Bible are an erotic sex poem. Adam's first words is a very sensual, very intimate poem about his, his counterpart, woman. The first words in the Bible that a human says are about intimacy and connection. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he says when he meets woman. So sex, as it was originally intended, is a great thing that God gives to humanity. And that has to be the starting place when we talk about sexuality. The first thing to remember, and this is key, is that sex is a good thing when it's used how God intends it to be used. Sex is a great thing when it is used how God intends it to be used. Now, how does God intend sex to be used? He says that he's very clear. He says sex is to be between a man and a woman within marriage for the purpose of kids, intimacy, and pleasure. That is the intent, that is the creational purpose that we see God creating human sexuality for. Without any sin, without oppression, without abuse, that is the blueprint. That's how the tool is meant to be used. That's how it's supposed to be between a man and a woman within marriage for the purpose of children, intimacy, and pleasure. And that within those bounds, the ecstasy of human sexual expression is it's great. It reflects who God is in a lot of ways. It's a good gift. 
from God. So that's the first thing I want us to see here. That is, God creates everything good, including human sexuality. Now, that's not where the Bible ends. It moves on to Genesis 3, right? And in Genesis 3, we start to see this sin creep into the world, right? And we see in Adam and Eve's sinful decision to reject God, to reject His law, that sin begins to wheedle its way into every part of human life. First it starts with our relationship with God, but then it just spreads out from there, even into our sexuality, right? So what is sin? We've said, I mean, we talked a lot about sin, but sin is using God's good gifts, His tools, in the wrong way. Sin is using a butane torch on a flammable fabric, in a sense. It's the perverse, rebellious, intentional violation of God's good gifts. That's, that's what sin is. And so we do this all the time, right? We don't just do this with sexuality. We do this with money. Money's a fine thing. And yet we use it to hurt other people. Economically, we use it to manipulate We use power. Oh my gosh, do we use power. All kinds of power. Social power, physical power, military power. It's not a bad thing, but human beings in our brokenness and in our sinfulness, we use it to harm and hurt other people. We do this with the earth's resources, where we use resources that are good gifts from God, and we manipulate them, and we're wrecking the environment through that, right? So we do this in all these other ways, and the same is true of our sexuality, that we use one of God's good gifts and we manipulate and we pervert and we twist it and we break it, right? Now, here's a really important point. This is so crucial. I want you to hear me say this. We all do this with our sexuality. Each one of us. This is not just that their homosexual sin is just like its own version of sexual brokenness and every the rest of us, if we're straight, are just like, oh, I'm fine. No, 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 I don't have to worry. No. Human sin is far deeper than that. Human sin means that every single one of us is in some way sexually broken. We call this, um, we call this idea the doctrine of total depravity. That sin gets into every piece of every person and hurts it. That means each one of us, with regards to our sexuality, is in some way hurt and hurting. We are both hurt in that we are the victims and we are hurting. That is, we are the people who go and hurt and harm others with our sexuality. Does that make sense? Think of, think of it like a... Um, Think of it like a war zone. Sin is like a war zone or a battlefield. I had a friend who, um, in, from seminary who uh, had just gotten back from being deployed overseas, and he'd seen a lot of combat, and he, was really, he had a lot of trauma from the combat he'd seen, but he had never been personally, physically injured. And I remember one night he and I were talking, and we were processing his, um, processing his experiences, and, and he said... Um, he said something really profound. He says, Jonathan, in a, battle, in a battle, some get shot, everyone gets hurt. Some get shot, everyone gets hurt. And I thought that was so profound that in a vicious battlefield, everyone is a casualty in some way. Some people, it's, it's physical harm. But nobody walks away from a battlefield without being hurt in some way, mentally, emotionally, socially. And that's how human sexuality is. 
Everybody is hurting in some way or another. Everybody is broken and twisted. Everyone's a casualty of the war that sin rages on our sexuality. So for some of us, that casualty, that hurt takes the form of promise, you know, of um, sexual addiction, pornography, that sort of thing. For some of us, it takes the form of sexual abuse or rape or something like that. For some of us, it's the form of infertility. For some of us, it's the form of divorce and marriage is breaking up. For some of us, it's some kind of minority, sexual minority, some sort of sexual attraction that's uh, not cis, cisgender or cis attraction. And for some of us, um, that's homosexual or same-sex attraction. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Everybody, we're all in the same boat. Yeah? We're all in the same boat of every one of our sexuality is somehow afflicted and affected by sin. For example, um, I'll, you know, my wife and I, we were both virgins when we got married. And yet, as we've been married, as we've done marriage together, we've both realized, like, wow, we're bringing a lot of baggage into this marriage. Even though we're in, a, in what would look like, from the outside, blank slates, we're like, wow, we have a lot of sexual brokenness. And we've got to, in our marriage, work on that together. Everybody's a, everybody is a casualty. So, what have we seen here? Okay, first major point, that sexuality, human sexuality is created good, but sin, it ravages it, and so that we are all equally both victims and perpetrators of some sort of sexual brokenness against ourselves and against others, all right? So, that's a foundation. That's kind of the, that's kind of the biblical foundation of human sexuality, right? All right, so stay with me. Now we're actually going to start getting into our text and talking about Leviticus and tonight's text. So, all right, it's crucial that you take kind of that foundation that we laid and start bringing into this. So remember, Leviticus, this whole book, is being written to the people of God, and it's building upon this foundation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, so that everything in Leviticus, it's God giving rules to his people, to the Israelites, on how the world is actually intended to be. So that when he gives laws, God's not just arbitrarily giving laws, just like, ah, I'm feeling this one today, and I'm feeling this one this gen, you know, I just, I'm feeling like, no, what God does is when he creates a rule or a law for his people, is he's trying to get us back through his laws, through his good laws, back to how flourishing as full human beings, including in our sexuality, is supposed to be. Always in Leviticus, the rules are intended to bring the world back, to bring humanity away from sin and back to flourishing. So for here, away from sexual brokenness that we're all in and back into sexual flourishing, using the tools as they're intended. So that's how we're to read, that's how we're supposed to look at Leviticus. Um, As an aside, I'll just say this, that a major part of being a Christian is asking hard questions about how God is in the process of redeeming your sexuality. A major part of being a Christian is how God is in the process of redeeming your sexuality. And um, if you're willing, we would love for RUF to be a part of that conversation. Those are hard, intimate, scary questions. And my wife and I are more than willing over coffee, in confidentiality, talk through how you've been a casualty and how God is in the process of redeeming and restoring and bringing back your and my sexuality to its creational intent. So um, 
you want to talk about it, let me know. I'd love to get with you. Nothing you say, say can will shame or embarrass me. I've heard a lot, and uh, it's okay. So we often say in RUF, it's okay to not be okay, and I want to lump sexuality into that. It's okay to not be okay in our sexuality. There's lots to say there, um, but let's dig in with this text. So um, let's look at our text. So let's look here. Let's start with verse 22, and then we'll work backwards. All right, so verse 22 What does it say here again? It says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay. It's a lot there. Let's uh, let's look and see what's happening. So what's going on here? All right. So lie with. When it says you shall not lie with a man as with a woman, what's he saying? Well, he's using lie with as a, you know, as a figure of speech, maybe, yeah, a little euphemistically, maybe not, uh, to express as a figure of speech for, for sexual intercourse. I think that's pretty clear. We can all probably agree with that. And so what it's saying here is that men should not be sexually involved with men, and by implication, women should not be sexually involved with women. Now, why? This is a, you know, this is a big question. Well, ultimately, because we would say that same-sex sexual activity is abusing, it's abusing God's created gift of sexuality between what he intends, which is man and a woman in marriage, for intimacy, for procreation, and for pleasure. Now, do you see what this means? He's saying that homosexuality twists and perverts God's creational design for sexuality, and he's saying this shouldn't be done. This is not what is best for you and your humanity. Right? Now, this is not a popular idea in 21st century America, especially on college campuses. You don't need me to tell you that, and yet it's true. So, uh, People try to explain this text away in a lot of different ways. In fact, there are three main ways that people try to discount or explain away this text. And I'm going to look at all of them. I want to look at all of them just just, um, real quick. So the first way that people try to say, oh, this text doesn't apply anymore to us, is they say that it's, oh, this is just ceremonial. This is just the ceremonial law. In fact, the argument goes something like this. Well, Leviticus says don't eat shellfish. Leviticus says don't wear clothes of different fabric. And we still do that today. I'll go eat, I'll go eat a, a shrimp dinner and, and think nothing of it. And that's how this is. This just is one of those laws that's back then and it doesn't apply anymore. Um, you know, there's a lot to be, lot to be said on this, but I, I, I think that the, the reason that breaks down is because um, it, it breaks down around the word abomination. They say the word abomination here describes ethnic Jewish ceremonial practices. That's, that's what they would say. And there's some truth to that, honestly. Um, but I think, I think that it's, that's possible. That might be the explanation here. But I don't think so for this reason. That word, abomination, is used 117 times in the Old Testament. And by and large, by far, the word's meaning is used to describe, how do I want to say this? It describes moral sin that is in rejection of God and his creation. When it uses that word abomination, it means that this thing is a rejection of God's law, of his purpose, and of his creation. And so I think when it says this is an abomination, it's not, and it's not just me saying this, there's great scholars, academics who spent their life studying this, that it would mean to say that this still has meaning. This is not just something that is ceremonially for the Israelite people, but this continues to apply today. There's more to be said, but I'll press on. Some people would explain this way. Here's the second thing. Some people would say that this, this is linked only with like what they'll say was cultic prostitution or temple prostitution or something like that. 
Um, and so this describes maybe you know some sort of pagan practice of cult prostitution. Um, I think again possible maybe. Uh, ultimately, I think that's not persuasive either for a couple of reasons. One, um, the text doesn't say anything about that. That's just not there. Uh, and and generally, scripture makes makes rules about you know we'll, we'll clarify on that. In fact, the text kind of lays down a pretty blanket statement. It makes no qualifications about this. It doesn't say, like, in the case of cultic prostitu- uh, prostitution, a man shall not lie. No, it just says blanket. Men should not lie with other men. Second thing, the best Old Testament scholarship in the world, and I mean, like, I've done a lot of research, the stuff that's up to four or five years old, like really recent scholarship, gives very little support that there was actually any cultic prostitution at this time. Like when this text was written 3,500 years ago in ancient Near East, it just didn't really exist a whole lot. Now later on in other parts of the world, maybe, but when this text was written, it just really wasn't existent there. Um, again, more to be said. I can, I can give you, point you to resources if you have questions. Let's look at the third. Some will say that this kind of sexual expression is about shame and sexual, sexual domination. Um, and so this is about one person dominating another person. You shouldn't do that. Um, and it doesn't have in mind, the text doesn't have in mind, sort of the consensual sexual expression, uh, same-sex or homosexual sexual expression that we have today. Uh, I'll just say this, two, two, two things I think are wrong with that is that um, we do know historically that sex, consensual sexual expression did exist back then. Um, that, that was the thing. And um, once again, the text doesn't make any qualification for that. It just says none of it. None of it. Uh, it's a pretty blanket statement. And, and second of all, I think when you were to say something like that, if you were to say like, oh, this is about shame and sexual domination and uh, honor and all that stuff, I think... I think that really is to import a lot of our 21st century and even Freudian sexuality onto the text. And that's just not the world that they were in. We call that in in, um, the world of interpreting texts, we call that eisegesis. It's reading your world onto the text. And it's just kind of a not a great way to read a text, honestly. And that's just not me. That's that's kind of how everybody will read a text in a lot of ways. rather than letting the text say what it says and then interpreting for what it says. Now, did I explain and justify all of those right up? No, there's a whole lot to be more said. And if you have more questions, please come up and talk to me. You can disagree with me. We can do it civilly, and I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm going to want you to come back. I'm going to want to engage. But um, there's a ton of academic work on here. Overall, I think <sighs> the unavoidable point, I think, that this text is saying is that homosexual behavior between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, it's sinful because it's a misuse of God's good gifts. It's a breaking, it's a twisting, it's a perverting of human sexuality as God intended it to be. Now, if that's what this text is saying, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? We've said a lot that humans are equally sexual broken, that uh, homosexuality is just one way that, uh, that expresses itself and that human sexual, homosexual practice is contrary to God's word um, and his good for humans. Now, again, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Well, of course, the Bible is good news. It's about God not just leaving us in our brokenness, but actually engaging with us to redeem and restore what's broken. So, it's, 
the Bible is so much more than just a list of do this, don't do that, or don't do this, do that. The Bible, it's so beautiful. The Bible is a story, it's a narrative of the living God coming close, coming near to a people who are in the midst of brokenness, even sexual brokenness, and saying, I want to fix this. Moving close, tenderly, caringly, gently saying, I want to fix each of you in the midst of your sexual brokenness. Now, where is that in this text? Well, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. What does it say? It says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Now, we talked about this last week. That phrase, I am the Lord your God, that's sort of a shorthand. That's kind of a reminder of all of God's gracious initiation and action and redemptive work in his people Israel's lives. It's a reminder when he says that, it's supposed to remind the people of all the ways that God has moved into his people Israel's life to save them and love them in the midst of their slavery to sin. That he is the God who saves the people out of the land of Egypt, out of their brokenness, out of their slavery, and says, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my tender, treasured possession. I love you. I care for you. And I'm not leaving you in your brokenness. That's what God does to each person, not just in terms of our sin, but in terms of our sexual brokenness. God comes close and says, I am going to fix this anew. This is even more clear in the, uh, in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, which had all kinds of brokenness. And he says to them, he says, he gives them a long list of, of sins to this Corinthian church. And he includes in that list, he says, homosexuality. And he says, there's this long list of very grave sins that you did. And it's really bad. There could be, you know, like, it's really bad that you did these things. These things are sinful things. And then he says, but, and I'm quoting him here, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that even in the midst of your sexual brokenness, even in the midst of possibly your homosexual sexual brokenness, God is a God who comes close to his people and says, you were washed by Jesus' blood. Your sexual brokenness was placed, in a sense, on Jesus. He loves you. He is in the process of what we call sanctifying you, of solving it, of fixing it, of renewing it through his love and his tender care and his mercy. And so what that means is that God of the Bible is in the process of restoring all things, all things, everything in the creation, including our sexuality, your, my sexuality, restoring it back to how it should be. That God does not just look at us in our brokenness and say, boy, that sucks. No, he comes close and fixes and heals and restores each of us. The God of the Bible is the only God who will accept you and me in the midst of our sexual brokenness and then lovingly change us back to how we are supposed to be. Y'all hear that? Y'all hear how profound and good and gracious that is? That the God of the Bible is the only God who will accept you and me in the midst of our sexual brokenness and then change us back, heal us back to the way we were supposed to be. Believe that, dear friends. Believe that God wants to meet you in the midst of your sexual brokenness. 
It gets better than that. The God of the Bible is pushing all of us towards the end of history when all things will be made new, where your and my sexuality will be renewed and restored perfectly. Y'all, that's heaven. It's when none of us will struggle with sexual brokenness and questions and hurts and past abuses and victimization and aggression and assault. None of that's going to exist. That's where God is taking all of us. Are you into that? Are you interested in joining in what God is doing to restore your and my sexuality? That's what God is doing when we say, I'm not okay. Please, God, fix me. Help me. That's where he's taking us. All right, I've talked a lot, so I'm going to give us two quick points of application, then I'll wrap up. First, um, I really encourage you all to lean into God's redemption of your sexuality. Lean into it. Don't think that just because you may not struggle with homosexuality that you're off the hook. All of us are, in a sense, on the hook. All of us are called to being sanctified in our sexuality, to submit our whole lives to Jesus' rule, including our sexuality. And second, um, we need to have a special and tender and caring love for our friends, for our brothers, for our sisters who do struggle with homosexuality. They've gotten a short staff shaft in, in our world today. We need to move towards them in love and in tenderness and understanding and gentleness and say, the God of the Bible calls me out of my sexual brokenness and he wants to do the same with you. We're all in the same boat. Would you come look to the Savior who is in the process of saving that? Y'all, there's so much more to be said here, but I'll stop there. Uh, I encourage you, if you have questions, come talk to me, um, and I'd love to engage. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, thanks for this time that we can look at your word. We pray, Lord, that you would um, be gracious to us, be merciful to us, that you would, for each of us, be healing our sexuality. Um, We'll give you the glory, and we wait with eager anticipation for that day when we are all renewed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.